Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Paul Lammers, CEO of Triumvirate Immunologics. Thanks, thanks for joining us today, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Rahul. Great to be here. Of course, Paul. So, Paul, to set the stage for the rest of the conversation, walk us through how you got interested in, in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm originally a Dutch, I'm an American now, but I'm a Dutch trained biologist and physician, and I got into pathology as a specialty. And I quickly realized that, or after a couple of years of pathology during my residency, that I'm a real people person. I love interacting with people. And I noticed that obviously the patients come in on slides, right, every day. So it's a bit of a different and looking through a microscope for eight hours a day is not something that I was really looking forward to. So when the chair of the department asked me at the academic university where I studied, hey, Paul, when you're done, we love you to join the faculty. I said, well, to be honest, I don't think I want to be a pathologist. And he said, Paul, the reason I went to the management, I cannot stand to look through a microscope for eight hours a day either. But I was intrigued by the combination since I had both a science as well as a medical background. I was interested by the combination of research, medicine, and business. So I thought, hey, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is intriguing. So I joined Organon, a Dutch pharma company at that time, and never looked back. And it's been an awesome career. You know, I developed multiple drugs, got served quite a few of them, you know, approved. And I was asked after three years in Holland to move to the United States. So I took my family, moved to New Jersey, spent there several years as the medical director for Organon. And then I joined Hushmir Roussel before it became, as I see, Hoogst Aventis, 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 Sanofi, Sanofi. So this shows how the world of pharma changes pretty rapidly. But then I was intrigued by biotech. Biotech was an up and coming new industry, almost like the little nephew of pharma. And I moved to Texas, joined a company that was working in erectile dysfunction, basically as head of clinical regulatory affairs and found that very intriguing. It's a nice environment, I noticed. Biotech, a small group of highly motivated professionals, jumping out of bed every morning, go to work and try to make something happening, and especially try to make a difference in a patient's life. So I did that. Again, I was focused heavily on, in this case, male health, also been in female health. And then I was approached to see if I wanted to become chief medical officer of Serono, which is a very well-known company in the infertility space. I was a big competitor of Organon, in fact. So I moved to Massachusetts with my family, became chief medical officer and a head of product development in the U.S. for the company. On purpose of what I've done over the years, Raul, is I've done a lot of different work in different aspects of the business. So I've done clinical development, medical affairs, regulatory product information, safety, QA, med I mean, because I want to understand the various components of a pharmaceutical company, different functions. And it really helps because... If you're interacting now with people from different functions, you understand a bit more what their mindset is, what the challenges are, and that really has helped me in my career. Anyway, so after that, I moved back to Texas to become president CEO of Myrna Therapeutics, a microRNA company in Austin. And that was my first gig as a president CEO, which was in a huge learning curve, but raised a significant amount of money with some big VCs, brought them public on NASDAQ in 2015. 
And then, which is an interesting experience too, by the way. And then we started a clinical trial. Unfortunately, we had immunotoxin phase one, so we had to stop, pull the plug on the trial. And then decided, since we had a lot of money in the bank, to do a reverse merger, which was in 2016, where financing was difficult. Not as difficult as now, but it was a tough year. So everybody and his brother was interested in merging with us. So we, we met with 49 companies. It was a crazy process. It took a year to get it done. So we closed the doors in August of 17. Then I was consulting for a few companies. As part of that, I was encouraged to go to Toronto and meet the co-founders of Trambera. So Jonathan Bramson, a professor of immunology at McMaster University in Hamilton, out of whose lab the technology came forth. And Brian Bloom, the CEO of Bloom Burton, an investment advisory firm in Toronto. I was really intrigued because at that time, so when I was talking 2017, you know, cell therapy was up and coming as a new therapeutic area, phenomenal results, but also really high toxicity risk associated with those therapies. But the tactic, our technology, we can talk about it a bit later, but it was so different than CAR-T. So I'm thinking, man, it would be great to build a team and a company around this. So I joined January, 2018. There were two scientists in Jonathan's lab around employees. So it was employee number three. And right now we have 72 people and it's been a fun ride. Wonderful. Thanks, Paul, for walking us through your background. I'm curious, as you look back at your days at EMD Serono and now operating at a biotech, what are some of the commonalities in terms of how you're operating across pharma and biotech? And what were some of the bigger differences that you'd like to call out? Yeah. So commonalities look at the end of the day, if you do drug development with all the aspects from your early drug discovery to bringing it to translational research into the clinic, you ultimately commercialize it. You witness that whole process at pharma and also, but the same thing happening with biotech. So if you think about, for instance, take the clinical development side of it, I mean, you still need to work with CROs. You need to have data management, statistics, clinical ops, the MDs here, the medical directors. So that is all the same, perhaps on a much smaller scale in biotech, because look, you can't really afford to have two or three MDs, you know, for instance, on the staff. But you work with CROs, and that's the same thing as a lot of pharma companies do, although that also is a some kind of an oscillating type of phenomenon in the pharma industry. But anyway, in that respect, it's very similar. The big differences are what I like in biotech. Look, if you and I need to make a decision, well, we can do this in five minutes. You know, the same decision takes four or five months in pharma because it has to move mm -hmm. all the rigmarole, the processes, and going up the chain until, until he finally lands on the desk of the CEO and the executive management, and then it has to go down again. I mean, and that is something that, that drives me crazy. I don't really have a lot of patience for that stuff because I know if a decision is the right decision, let's just do it and go for it. And, and that's something that I love on biotech. Of course, you have a board of directors, so the board of directors are very important for helping set the strategy. But once the strategy is set, this is what we're going to do, then man, we're going for it. So we are known at Trinvera for setting pretty good milestones, timelines, whatever, but man, we stick to that. And because the one thing that also, you know, getting lucky thinking ahead for us at some point in time, becoming a public company, you know, it's something that Wall Street doesn't appreciate if you miss out on your timelines. And it is a mentality that needs to be ingrained, you know, in the management team. And the good thing is I hired industry experienced professionals. You know, a lot of people are spread out around the country, but it works well because they all know they've been in this before. They've been in pharma, they've been in biotechs. They know what they need to get done to represent certain functions. Of course, we talk a lot, we Zoom meeting a lot, we team meeting a lot, but it all works, which is great. That's very forward looking of you that you're trying to build that corporate discipline to hit timelines, preparing for potentially going public in the future. 
I'm curious how you got there in terms of that thinking. Was it observing other companies? Was it past experiences that you saw that are leading you to really build that corporate discipline right now? A great question, Roel. So as you often know in life, you learn the most from the mistakes, right? And I think I've seen other companies have own experiences working at different pharma companies where things get so delayed, you know, we push out a timeline. And of course, Wall Street hated that or the board doesn't like that. I mean, you know, sometimes the demand you make changes to the teams, whatever it is. And, and I take also hiring and obviously firing people extremely serious. I mean, this is affect people's lives, families, you name it. I just felt that I want to make sure that we set realistic timeframes, timelines, but then my God will try to make them. And that is really important because some CEOs overpromise, say, oh, without, we'll get a clinic in six months. Well, you're not going to get a clinic in six months. It's going to take you 12 or 14 months, you know, idiot, you know, and that becomes really difficult because you set six months and people remember, people always remember the shortest time to a milestone as well as the lowest dollar amount to get to a milestone. So if you overpromise and underdeliver, that's not good. Great. Thank you for sharing that perspective and how you got there. You know, before we jump into the work that you're pursuing now, a couple more questions. You've been a CEO before, and how's your approach evolved to running a company changed from the first time around to this time? Well, great question, Will. So when I first joined Myrna as president CEO, as I said, it was my first gig as a CEO. I didn't even know the difference between the sell side and the buy side analyst. I'm serious. I mean, if you work in the world of drug development as a scientist and a physician, a clinician, you never come really across those people. I'm serious. So I did later when I was at Serono, oftentimes I asked by the CEO to join him when we did R&D meetings, R&D days and analyst days in New York and what have you. So that's really when I first got basically, but still I felt a bit uncomfortable in this whole world of finance and raising money and doing the roadshows and, you know, developing the pitch deck and making the pitches. And I noticed that I picked up pretty quick and I got really comfortable in it. So the second round for Trinvera, it was relatively easy for me. The other thing that I'm a huge proponent of is I hate micromanagement. I hate a bit of vengeance because if I would micromanage you, Roel, I would ask you three times a day, Roel, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? It drives you nuts. It drives me crazy. And it gets so less productive. So I hire people based on the expertise to bring to the company. And then I allow them to build their own teams, to run their own teams, to run their own function. Of course, look, we have all the updates meetings or whatever, right? We have project teams. You know, we meet as a management team every other week. We meet as an all-hands meeting every other week. So we know... Damn sure what's going on, but allow people the freedom to be the expert that they are and have become over the time. And man, it pays off because people feel much better. They're relaxed. They know what needs to get done. They're not looking over the show. Oh, where's Paul? Where's Paul? I mean, he's going to beat me up. That is just nonsense. And I still hear so many CEOs who run companies like tyrants. I'm thinking, man, I mean, that is just so outdated and it is just so counterproductive. Yeah, lots of stories coming out both in the tech and the biotech world about those types yeah, of CEOs. Yeah, so it's nowadays. just, you know, it's just dumb. Yeah, I, I just don't understand what they're thinking if they do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to that point, perhaps there's a piece of that that is anxiety in CEOs. And I'm curious now, given this is, you've done this before, how do you handle the ups and downs and emotional journey that sometimes can be a lonely emotional journey of being a CEO. And, you know, obviously there's so much risk in everything we do in biotech, but I'm curious what 
your own approach and mental model is to riding the waves? Yeah, well, well, first off, I mean, I've realized pretty quick, I believe in teamwork. I really think that as a team, it truly is more than the sum of parts, right? So that's one thing. So I let the teams do their thing. Also, it allows for me to relax a bit and knowing that the team is taking care of this certain project and that's really important to the company, that allows for me to relax as well. So I think that I'm a pretty cool in terms of cool, <laughs> my daughter said I'm a cool guy, that's fine. But I'm just saying, I don't really get very upset. Sometimes what I find frustrating, especially in the current difficult financing environment is, as an example, I had JP Morgan, was a CEO was interviewed. They raised a boatload of money. It's a big series, a big IPO. They raised like a billion dollars. And then he said, two years later, we found out everything we touched failed. But we don't worry because we have a runway into 2026. Now yeah. that we all, because we work as a team each and every day so hard, make phenomenal progress. Our board is always blown away by how much progress we made. Effort experiment is well designed, well executed. The road sales are awesome. And we're struggling to get a lead investor into our rounds, you know? So that is tough. That sometimes frustrates me because I'm thinking, what more can we do to get the message across that we are an exciting technology company. We make significant progress. We're in the clinic. We see great data happening in the clinic and patients. So what more? But again, the micro environment for us right now, cell therapy is yeah. one of the least interested areas for VCs to invest in. And on top of that, we're tackling solid tumors, which is really difficult. So that's even lower on the totem pole. So, you know, it's almost like a double whammy against you. But what more can we do than to show great progress and great data? I yeah. just don't know what else I can do, right? I mean, I, I'm not going overboard and making ridiculous statements and claims which are not based on facts because then you go down the hill really fast. It's all fact-based. We're moving forward. We have great inside investors. They're supporting us, which is awesome. But it would be great to get two or three new ones come in. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so now, given the uncertainty in the market, Paul, how is that informing how you and the team are approaching development activities? And then also, you know, since we are touching on this point, what advice would you give leaders that are listening, given that you've been through some of these cycles before? You know, becoming a CEO of a small biotech, it's a bit like take a deep breath and hold on for the right. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride. So you have great ups and oh my God, you raise money and feel like you're you're on a cloud nine, right? I mean, but then suddenly when you notice that you see the bottom of the war chest, it gets tougher. And then you have a team, you have to say, guys, let's differentiate between the must-haves and the nice-to-haves. And let's clearly focus on the must-haves. You know, the problem is if you start stopping or cutting projects, you might also throw away the baby with the bathwater, right? Because at the end of the day, they could be phenomenally good. And that's the reason you did them and you start them in the first place. But at some point in time, and sometimes in life, you have to make tough choices. And as an executive, sometimes I have to make an executive choice, which the team might not like, but they will appreciate why I had to make that decision. And yeah. I think you need to be decisive also, you know, as I said, if somebody doesn't fit on the team, well, I tell them the next day that you're not fitting the team and that's it. Again, these are not easy discussions to have, but that's part of being an executive. I mean, a lot of people, what I've noticed over the years and experience, a lot of people want more responsibilities, but they don't want more accountability. And that's where the bucket stops. And I tell people, people come to me and say, Paul, I really want to be a, a manager. I said, okay, manager's great because you got a great new business card. Your mother will be extremely proud of you, what you've done because you become a people manager. <laughs> but, and it all goes well, it's awesome. But man, if something goes wrong, 
that's where the manager role comes in. You have yeah. to fix it. Not me as the CEO. You're the manager. You've got to figure figure this out, but HR or whatever, whatever is going on with the team. It's not to say, well, that's Paul's problem. No, 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 no. That's your problem. And sometimes people take a deep breath when they hear me say that. But I said, that's true. People like more responsibility, like to grow in a career or whatever. I said, it's great, but it comes with more accountability. Yeah. Wonderful point, Paul. I want to go back a couple of topics now. We briefly touched on cell therapy. So I'd love to hear your perspective on where that modality now stands, mm -hmm. where are fundamental challenges, and obviously where there are opportunities that you're pursuing. Well, the advent of cell therapy has been phenomenal, right? I mean, as people say now that the T cell, you know, the T lymphocyte is the best and the most powerful drug ever developed. And it has done amazing things for patients. I mean, if you think back at the beginning of the CAR T space, where they treated six kids with pediatric lymphoblastic leukemia, which were basically was a kiss of death for the kids. And, you know, out of the five out of six made it. And now they are now young teenagers, you know, growing up and doing fantastic. I mean, that was just unheard of type of efficacy. However, it came with a tough side of it. The side effects were horrendous as well. And the risk, you know, there was a when cell therapy became more and more widespread and the data from the studies came out, there was a running joke on Wall Street that said, if it doesn't kill you in the first week, you have a great chance of responding to the therapy. And that was true. I mean, these kids and also adults, they had to be in the ICU for days and sometimes weeks trying to make it because of the, the impact if you bring you know, cells into a body and that what can happen. But a lot has been learned over the years. So I think that the products have become way more safer hematologists have become far more comfortable in treating also these side effects that occur. One of the biggest challenges now is, and that's where we're operating in, is that cell therapy has worked phenomenally in the heme malignancy. So lymphomas, leukemias, multiple myeloma. Solid tumors is something completely different. And the reason is, say, liquid or blood-borne malignancies like lymphoma, leukemias, and myeloma, the tumor cells are either in your vascular system or your lymphatic system. So it's relatively easy for these cells that you administer to the patient to find the tumor cells. In solid tumors, it's different. These cells have to get out of your bloodstream, go through a difficult stroma, but sometimes called a hostile microenvironment, to try to find the tumor cell and then do its cell-killing activity. So the hurdles are much higher for these cells, and that makes it a much tougher and a higher hurdle. And that's why a lot of CAR T companies have failed in that attempt. They've tried and they've tried with all kinds of different versions of their CAR technology. But our tech technology has a leg up given the fact that the way we activate T cells and also silence T cells is different than CAR Ts. And it makes more, call it marathon runner cells out of it. Majority of T cells retain what you call a memory phenotype. So they have an opportunity once they turn into effector cells, they can kill a bunch of cancer cells, but a majority stays memory. So you have a chance to put another group of effector cells out there and then another one. And it's really important to realize that if you make CAR T cells in the factory, they already start producing cytokines because that's how they're built. They're built to produce cytokines. Now, these cytokines, A, lead to these horrendous side effects you know, in patients, but also means that these poor cells have to run a marathon and run out of juice. And they run out of a juice fast. So this lack of persistence is a big challenge for CAR-T companies. But you cannot really, unless you truly change the way that the vector and the technology is built, that's just unfortunately, you know, what they are settled with. The nice thing for us with the TAG, the TAG T-cell, as we make them in the lab, only get activated when they actually meet up with a tumor cell and bind to an antigen presented on that cell. 
others, if not, then the tech T cells are in rest. And that's good. You want to have normal T cells, the immune surveillance, what happens in your normal, your whole body, it's, you know, lymphocytes are checking up as any viruses, bacteria, parasites around, any kind of that's foreign that we need to attack. They check on your whole body, but in normal day, they just check it out. They're not being activated, you know, unless something really is there, then they start producing cytokines and try to kill the host, you know, the, the invader or whatever. And so, and that's just the tech T cells have what we call our ideal adoptive cell therapy approaches because the way that they are activating T cells, but also silencing T cells when they don't need to be activated. Great, Paul. Thank you for that overview. Now let's talk about where you are from a development perspective, how large is the team and what you're looking forward to over the next couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. So we are building a broad and promising pipeline based on our tech platform technology. So our first program is targeting HER2, a very well-known antigen in the, especially in breast cancer and gastric cancer. We have completed the first part of what you call the dose escalation phase of the first study. We have reached out a recommended phase two dose. So we're in the second half of this year, we're going into the phase two part. We see great supportive safety profiles so far, quite different number of CAR-Ts. And also we see some very intriguing signs of clinical benefit in quite a few patients, especially those in gastric cancer and gastroesophageal junction cancer. So those are the two cancer types that we will pursue in this phase two. So there's one part. The other thing that's interesting in the second half of this year, we'll start combining our tech T cells with Keytruda, Pembrolizumab, you know, the biggest selling cancer drug right now from Merck. So, and also Merck, we've had a lot of discussions with Merck to intrigue about our tech technology, and they have agreed to provide the Keytruda free of charge, you know, to patients in the study, which is a lot of money that helps us a lot as well. Then the other thing that will happen second half this year, we're starting a next clinical program, which is targeting Claudin 18.2, which is an exciting new targets in solid tumors. It's interesting. I mean, we identified that about three or four years ago as a promising new targets in solid tumors. And of course, right now, there's about 20 companies pursuing Claudin. But that's just the world, the way the world is. I mean, if a target is really intriguing, a lot of pharma and biotechs go, go after it. But we still feel if we start the trial second half this year, that's the intent, that we have a good chance to be still in the race, basically, early on in the race, you know, which is exciting. Now, both the first and second program are what you call autologous or patient-derived, and we are using so-called Cocoon platform that is made by Lonza, one of the biggest cell manufacturing companies in the world. They felt, looks like we felt, that automation in the world of autologous manufacturing is the way forward. And working with the cocoon so far, we are the first company in the United States to dose patients with cells made in the cocoon, and it has been astonishing. And it's a game changer in the world of autologous manufacturing. But next to that, we develop an allogeneic platform based on, which is basically called a healthy donor derived platform, which is based on gamma delta cells, which is a small subgroup of your normal T cells as well in the body, but ideal for developing an allogeneic product. You know, I think it's very important for us that we have both platforms. You have autologous and allogeneic because both will remain and needed in the cell therapy treatment space going forward. So we're going to bring that into the clinic in the second half next year. So that's an exciting. So we have a lot to offer, you know, and there's a lot going on. That's why it's crazy busy. We have, as I said, 72 employees. We have everything, of course, from, you know, research and discovery, you know, and development. We have translational research. We have a great clinical team. And then, of course, we have regulatory. We have a huge manufacturing team as well. Yeah, it's fun. You know, I mean, it's all the aspects of drug development, and that's what you need. And sometimes a question that the VCs also like to ask me is, Paul, what keeps you up at night? 
Well, first off, I mean, the moment my head hits the pillow, I'm out, you know, so <laughs> a lack of sleep. But sometimes, you know, you know, in drug development, it's a long and cumbersome process. I like the idea that they say, well, you have a pipeline, which is your long pipe that where oil streams through, but that's not a pipeline in drug development. It's all convoluted and it all goes a different direction, these pipes, right? So that's more like a Medusa's hat type thing of pipes. The only thing that sometimes wonder, did you say, damn, if we do that, did we not forget that? Because damn, we would have to go back, started that three years ago. You see, I mean, time yeah. never on the side of a biotech developing drugs, you know? So as they say, the three critical components in drug development are time, quality, and cost. Yeah. Now quality, well, always reminds me of the Ford Motor Company that several years ago I had that quote, quality is job number one. That was their big slogan always on TV and all the ads. So quality should be unquestionable. If you don't want to do something at 100% quality, don't even bother starting it in the first place. That's a total waste of people's money. So cost, you can try to control, but it's expensive. Self-therapy is very expensive. But time, man, time kills a lot of biotech companies because you cannot create time, right? Look, I'm spending a lot of money as a drug developer or as a self-therapy company, and it takes time. I can yeah. tell you, for instance, making a GEP vector for our cells, the production making GEP, is one year. Yeah. And so, Paul, you know, this concept of time is a really important and interesting topic, particularly as it relates to value creation, uh, yeah. going from inflection point to inflection point. And given all that you can do with a technology like cell therapy, how do you think about indication selection and value creation in terms of your first and second assets? Just curious about, you know, your own mental model for threading that needle. Well, great question. So I think that for us, it's all driven by data. The data will take you where they're at, right? So if we have, if we see in our clinical program, certain patients with certain cancers respond, well, by default, that becomes indication on the pursuit. Now, you have to think hard. If that, for instance, is, let's take prostate cancer as an example, or breast cancer, still high on my need. But these development programs take really long time. If you want to show overall survival benefit of prostate, these studies take five, six years, you know, so you have to be careful if you go there, look, unless, look, if the data is just absolutely, you know, phenomenal, then of course you do it, but you need to, again, hold on for that long ride because the waiting game is also tough, right? Yeah. The thing is important when it comes to creating milestones and value inflection point is that you have multiple programs in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're happy that we're starting our Claudin program second of this year, because having two clinical programs provides a stronger second lag under the company. It makes mm. it more solid. And also you have more chances to have value inflection points across multiple programs. Because if you say, yeah. look, and I've done multiple sclerosis studies in the past, you know, and the perfect yeah. example, it takes you a year to recruit these patients, but then each patient would be followed up for two years. I mean, that's a three-year thing. I mean, that takes yeah. forever. Right? Before yeah. you get yeah. a readout on these studies and, you know, be careful when you get into and when you pick also the, look, it depends on the technology, of course, and where the technology is ideally directed towards. We're also now thinking about using our tech T cells and autoimmune disease. That's the next frontier, I would say, for cell therapy. And several companies have started that already. So oncology is obviously still high on that need, you know, and then go, but create multiple pro multiple shots and goals, they like to say. I mean, gives you more opportunities. And we touched a little bit about your partnership with Merck. I'd love to hear how you think about partnerships, particularly in this environment. And then also, you know, fast forwarding a little bit of what you foresee in terms of the interplay between biotech and pharma moving forward. Sure. 
Well, regarding the first part of your question, clearly, just like the VCs like to see more data, pharma is the same way, right? They say, look, intriguing platform, but we like to see more data. For us in our space, I mean, pharma loves allergenic or donor-derived, you know, because they have seen the problems with the initial CAR-T autologous manufacturing. I mean, it was horrendous. A lot of patients, you know, products was developed, but they were out of spec, right? So they didn't meet the specification demanded by the FDA or agreed upon with the FDA. So they had to go back to the FDA and said, look, you know, they're out of spec, but is it okay if we still give the patients these cells because these patients deserve to get their cells back, which, which I'll fully agree, by the way. So I think that has been a difficulty for the cell cell therapy space. You know, regarding the, so the interplay with pharma, so obviously you meet a lot, you know, it's a lot of shaking hands and as they say, kissing frogs, right? It's good. I love talking about the technology in the company. It's great. You know, but we realize that they're also taking a bit of a step back. Also, because for the same token, the environmenting environment is not that great. And in fact, normally what happens after you have a slow start to a biotech year, funding year, once there is M&A activity in pharma, that really kickstarts the whole biotech financing environment again. Because people say, oh, interesting. Do you see how much money that company was bought for? So Seattle Genetics was bought by Pfizer, what, three weeks ago for a lot of money. It yeah. hasn't really had any impact. You don't really see any impact yet on the biotech financing environment. So that is because it is right now a really tough year. 2023, just like 2022, continues to be really tough. 2021 was an amazing year. And I always felt that people are so bored sitting at home because of COVID that they say, well, let's just invest left and right and see what happens. And so 21 was an, almost an outlier. There was uh, just the sky was the limit, you know, and, and 2022 is shut down 23. The IPO windows are still just a bit open. So the other thing, the second part of your question, the interplay between biotech and pharma is clear that biotech remains the feeder of the pipeline for pharma companies. They love to bring in new technologies. Also, I think pharma companies have realized over the years that inside R&D organizations were too bloated, too inefficient. So they started to streamline their own in-house organizations a lot because they say, wait a minute, if, if biotech can do that, we can do that too. You know, are you kidding? So there's more interplay. Also, if a biotech gets bought by pharma, the pharma companies love to leave, keep the biotech company, leave them alone. You know, you do your own thing. You have your own team. You have your own employees. You have your own efficiencies and we don't want to disturb that because again as i said in pharma often the processes are cumbersome take a lot of time and it slows everything down and that is something that people love biotech because biotech is like this and that's just not pharma it's not i always say pharma is like one of these big steamrollers it take a long time that it gets rolling but man in their role you better get out of the mm. way because they mm. flatten you i mean that is really true so it's great for biotech to have big pharma partners that are supportive and let them be alone and do their own thing and also still provide, you know, the financial resources that are needed because, you know, drug development is just expensive, period. And Paul, before we close out, I'd like to ask you to reflect for a minute here. If there's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, given now all of your life experiences, what would that be? Be daring, because I found out over the years that initially a bit hesitant, can I do this? Can I not do this? And you just go for it. And I remember yeah. quickly, I moved from New Jersey, from Hirschman-Russell down to Texas to join Zonogen, a small public biotech company as head of clinical and regulatory. And I remember driving down by myself in the car, two long days, and thinking, regulatory first, man, can I do this? Can I actually do this? And then you find out, look, I tell people, if you have a healthy set of brains, you're willing to read, 
to dig into a subject, you're willing to go out and talk to some experts, you learn pretty quick and you can become mm. disgusted at the table in no time. And it is an amazing relief to see that you've tackled a new, whether that is a new therapeutic area. I've worked a lot of different therapeutic areas. Of course, I have my pathology background, which is basically from head to toe, right? But you know, I was intrigued by that. I like learning new things. And that to me has helped, but also be daring enough thinking, hey, you can do this, but you can be a CEO, right? Because I remember when I was chief medical officer at Serono, people said, yeah, yeah, people said, Paul, you would make a great CEO for biotech. And I said, yeah, that's great. But whenever I talk to VCs or board directors, they say, Paul, I understand what you want, want to do, but there's enough MBA guys we can make CEOs, but could you please, please be our chief medical officer because we cannot find a lot of MDs have a great business sense. And that's absolutely true. So, mm. you know, but then I got the chance and I jumped on it and, and make something happen and it worked out great. And I'm happy that what I, that I did. Young people be there and go for it. If you don't be concerned, can I do this? Just go for it. Yeah, that certainly resonates with me. So Paul, thanks for, so much for taking some time today. Sure. Uh, wishing you continued success as you pursue such meaningful work at, at Triumvirate. Great. Thanks, Raul. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.